Good morning, Storehouse. It's great to see all of you this morning. My name is Nathaniel. Uh, I am a member of Storehouse. Been here with you for a, uh, a while now. It's been multiple years. Uh, and I am grateful to be able to continue our series in the parables of Jesus this morning. And uh, like Tony said, we're going to be in Matthew 18. So if you are already not there, please you know, open your Bibles or, or load them up on your phone and uh, join me in Matthew 18. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about a very difficult topic. We're going to talk about forgiveness. And forgiveness is uh, its very difficult because for each and every single one of us, it's a very deeply personal topic. See, all of you and me and every person in this room, we have unique experiences that feed into our perspective on forgiveness. Not a single one of us have experienced the same pain, the wounds from maybe someone who backstabs us, uh, a situation that requires us to forgive or a time when we have wounded somebody else and we know it and we need forgiveness. All of these you know, situations, these circumstances, these memories, they flood back into our minds as we talk about forgiveness. I know, you know, me even just thinking about this parable, I immediately thought of a couple of situations throughout my life where where it really hurts still, even to this day. And so forgiveness is difficult because it's so deeply personal. See, on one end, we have uh, grief, we have anger, possibly even bitterness because we've been wounded by others. But on the other hand, maybe you're the one that has wounded someone and you feel shame, guilt, regret. We feel very deeply about forgiveness because it encompasses so much hurt. And I encourage you, lean into that during this time this morning. Because it, it's going to influence how you're able to process your hurt, but also be able to influence how you go about the process of forgiveness. You can't just push aside how you feel and say, oh, I, I gotta do this just cause. You have to be able to accept all the pain and all the heartache that comes along with this topic so that we can actually talk about it and you can process it and you can actually listen to the words of Jesus Christ about this and apply it to yourself. Because as much as I'm gonna try to give us you know, a general application for this, all of us are unique. Our perspective's unique. And so you're gonna to have to come to your own application for your own circumstances, your own situations, your own heart. However, we do have some general truths that can help us get there, to guide us forward, that can push through the emotion and not forget about it, but help us process it and move forward. And the truth that we're gonna focus on this morning and this is the main idea, this is the thing I want you to take away from today, is that a forgiving heart reflects God's heart. A forgiving heart reflects God's heart. God reveals this truth to us so that we can have solid ground underneath us, a foundation to walk through the pain of forgiveness. And we know that forgiveness is the right thing to do. I mean, we're entering into this conversation already kind of knowing that. You know forgiveness is a good thing. But it's not just morally right. It's not just ethically correct, because the Bible says so. But it's also good for us. It's the best thing for our lives. Even if we take a, away the ethical side of it, it's just good for you to be able to forgive. Dr. Uh, Frederick Luskin at Stanford did a really in-depth study on forgiveness and his research that he published, he said, and I quote, learning to forgive improves psychological and physiological wellness, offers protection against future upsets. Forgiveness training also leads individuals to become emotionally stronger 
experience greater confidence, and be increasingly optimistic. And so to be able to forgive is, yes, holy, and it is the right thing to do. But it's also just good for you. And there's no mistake that these things go hand in hand. Because God is not just sitting up, you know, in some place on a throne, passing down these rules and these laws. He wants the best life for you because he loves you and cares for you. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about his nature in a little bit. But forgiveness for right now, just know that forgiveness is the right thing to do, but it's also the best thing to do for all aspects of your life. So let's pray over this passage, this parable, our examination of it, but let's also pray for our hearts. I want you to join me in this prayer, that your heart is able to be softened and ready to hear what God has for us in this parable. Lord, I am so grateful that we get a study, Matthew 18. Lord, your word is illuminating. It reveals our hearts. It helps transform our hearts. Father, you do so much through your word. And this passage is wonderful. It is challenging. It is encouraging. It is good for us. Allow us to be able to, one, accept how we feel, accept the difficulty of forgiveness, accept maybe the pain that immediately comes to mind when we talk about this, and let us be able to process it in a healthy way this morning so that we can understand the truth of your heart, that your heart is a forgiving heart. And if we want to be like you, we want to honor you, then our heart must also be forgiving to reflect your heart. Allow us to be able to hear with open ears, to be able to actually listen and understand. We thank you and we praise you in all things. Amen. So this is the parable in Matthew 18. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. That's, that's what it's commonly called. And this parable actually begins with a question. And so Jesus uses the parable as an answer to a question by Peter. And it says in verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And so Jesus will now after this go into this parable as the answer to this question as kind of an explanation of his answer right here of not seven, but 77 times. For us to be able to kind of get into the parable and understand exactly what Jesus is saying and why he is saying it, we need a little context. Because this question by Peter, you know, it's preceded by a conversation about forgiveness within scripture right before this. You can go back and read it. But it's also kind of coming out of nowhere in a way. He's asking a very specific question. How many times should I forgive? And the reason why he asks this is because it's a common question at the time. Matter of fact, it's still a common question in Jewish tradition even today. Forgiveness is a heavily debated topic. And so for us to understand why he's asking this and kind of where Peter is trying to get to, we need to understand his context within Jewish society and culture. And especially because Peter was an unlearned man. He was not a rabbi. He was not a teacher. He didn't go to all the special schools. He was a fisherman. And so we have him walking with Jesus, learning all this beside him, also being around other teachers as he's in ministry with Jesus, and he's just soaking it all up and learning, and he's hearing these discussions. I'm sure he's been part of multiple discussions with the disciples and other teachers over the years about forgiveness. What should forgiveness look like? How should we do it? And so for us to understand how he's coming into this, we need an understanding of the Jewish tradition and surrounding uh, surrounding, uh, forgiveness, which is called teshuva. Teshuva is a Hebrew word that means return, but it is basically the path to repentance. And it's a very well-thought-out doctrine and tradition within Jewish culture. 
that's been around since this time, before this time of Jesus, and it's still around today. In fact, some of you may recall when Israel became a country, there was a lot of conversation about how teshuva should happen in the context of the Jewish people coming from the Holocaust and how that processing is gonna happen. Teshuvah is a part of that conversation. And so Peter is entering into this question with teshuva in mind. Now with teshuva, it's kind of got a process that occurs. So let's say I sinned against you. I did something against you. I've wounded you. I've hurt you. I've sinned against you. Teshuva is the process that I take to regret my sin against you, to stop doing it, to confess it verbally and make restitution, meaning that I, I pay back money or, or do something to, to make restitution for the sin. And then I commit to never do it again. Those are kind of the four steps that must be taken by me because I sinned against you. That's teshuva. Now in Jewish tradition, you can tell that the onus is on the offending party. I did something wrong. I have sinned against you, and so I must do these things to make it right, to find redemption, to seek forgiveness. In fact, if I don't do these things, if I don't do this process, you're actually not allowed to forgive me because I have to do these things. It's completely on the offending party, okay? Forgiveness can't be done without me doing these things. But even then, let's say I do do these things, I make restitution, I, I am able to do teshuva, and we get to a point where you forgive me. Awesome. Let's say six months later, I do the exact same thing again. I go through the process again, and you forgive me. Awesome. I go through it again, because I just do it all over again. And you forgive me. Awesome. But in Jewish tradition, they wanted to know, how many times do we do this? How many times do I have to forgive this guy because he keeps sinning against me in the same way, going through this process of teshuva, awesome, but it's just happening over and over and over. So how many times should I forgive? And the answer is commonly three times. No more than three times. Rabbi Hosef ben Judah in about 180, and so he's about a contemporary, but this is the thought process. He says, if a brother sins against you once, forgive him. A second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. But a fourth time, do not forgive him. One of the greatest teachers, Jewish tradition at that time, and this is the thought process. This is the belief, the tradition. So Peter, coming into this, he actually probably thought he was being super gracious because he, he knew this answer. He knew the answer was three. And he was like, Jesus, I should probably forgive someone seven times, right? You know, I'm super holy. That's his thought. And Jesus is like, nah, actually, not seven times, 77 times. I mean, Peter... Let's give him props. He actually was being very radical for his time, being very radical for what he was coming out of. But it still wasn't enough because Jesus, even in his answer, though he gives a number, the point is that it's not actually 77 times. He's saying rather, you need to forgive freely and always. Jesus turns the whole question on its head. It is completely astonishing that he would give this response. And like I said, it's not just then either. This is a completely astonishing response for today. Even in the Jewish tradition. And we could think about even our cultural traditions in American culture, how many times do you forgive someone for the same thing over and over and over? The answer is not 77 times. It's not freely and always. It may not be as specific as three, but 
we, we have a cutoff. We do. It's just not as explicitly spoken. This is radical. That forgiveness is to be given always, even in the absence of teshuva. Even if the other party, the offending party, does not repent or make restitution, we are to still forgive, which he expands upon in this parable. See, what Jesus does in this parable, the reason why he's giving it is because this is radical. It's crazy. And so he's trying to make it more understanding for them, to be able to give a crazy circumstance within the parable that we'll, we'll talk about, but to, to make it so that they can wrap their heads around it. And we still need that, to be able to understand what forgiveness actually is, because the forgiveness that he teaches is very radical to us as well. So to Jesus, what he's doing is he's making a connection between God's forgiveness of us and our sins and our forgiveness of others. That's the connection that he's making. Now, this parable is not an entire explanation of forgiveness. It is not an entire theology or doctrine upon it. It's not going to go into justification, reconciliation. It's not going to go into redemption. It's not going to go into all these other areas because that's not the point. This parable is not meant to go that deep. And so we're not going to go that deep this morning. Okay? There's going to be situations I'm not going to address. There may be situations in your life that you're going through right now, and I may not give a clear answer for you. It, wouldn't be, it would be impossible for me to cover everything, to cover everything that we go through. But that's not the purpose of this parable. It's not to answer every question we have about forgiveness. So it's not our purpose this morning. The parable, its purpose is to grab our attention. It's to make a connection between God's heart, our heart, and forgiveness. And to see that there is a link there. It is to emphasize how God's forgiving nature should transform our unforgiving nature. It's to get your attention and hopefully then set you on a path that leads you to asking deeper questions and seeking more answers within scripture. So you can think of this kind of as a forgiveness 101 introductory course to get us started upon it and to understand how important it really is. And so let's jump into this parable and what we're gonna do is we're just going to go through it uh, a few lines at a time and kind of talk about the situation that the parable finds itself in and then how that applies to us just as Jesus intends and what he does with Peter. So in verse 23, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So in the parable, servant is brought before the king and he owes him 10,000 talents. Now a talent is the biggest denomination of currency, okay? So Jesus is immediately kind of going as far as you can go. And he says 10,000. This is a ridiculous amount of money. So if we convert this to today's money, we can't be exactly sure because talent could be gold, silver, other precious things. But it's commonly thought that it's probably talents of gold. And so we're talking about trillions of dollars in today's money. Not billions, trillions of dollars. That's insane. So this servant, underling, comes to the king and he owes all this money, trillions of dollars to him. And he can't pay it. I mean, that's obvious. There is no way that he is able to. And that's the point that Jesus is getting to, that a debt exists between him and the king, and there is no possible way he would ever be able to pay it off. No matter what he did, no matter how hard he works, you can't pay it off. Some of you may see where this is going. There is a debt to be paid between us and God. 
that we cannot pay off. Because it is exorbitant, just like this servant's debt is. And it must be paid. See, God is holy. That means that he is good, he is righteous. No evil thing can be done by him or in his presence. He is holy and cannot allow anything but holiness to be around him. Because it's completely just against his nature. And so what we do is we use legal terms often to be able to understand this. And it's a great way to explain like justification, which once again, we're not getting into all that today. But it's a great way to explain it. Even, even the language of you know, finance, where we talk about there's a debt. But another way to think about it, which might give you a, a better perspective of this debt that exists, is to think of it more like oil and water. We are oil and God is water. Our sin makes it impossible for us to be able to mix with God. That's the debt. It's not so much necessarily in those legal terms. It's not necessarily just in in the financial terms that we use. I mean, we use the law just to understand that this separation exists. But it's more a separation of nature. We are oil and God is water and we cannot be together. We, We just can't. It's impossible. We are not holy. And that's by our own choice, but also by our nature, a sinful nature. And that's our debt. The way that we live every single day defiles the very perfect goodness of God. And we cannot pay it off. We cannot make up the difference. We cannot make ourselves transform into water. We are oil. No way to make up that difference, just like the servant can't make up the difference that he owes. And so let's move on into verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The servant is begging for forgiveness of his debt. Trillions of dollars. Remember, this is an insane amount of money. He will never be able to pay it off. And he knows it. I mean, he begs and says, just give me a chance. Give me more time and I will pay it off. Knowing full well that he can't. And the king knows that he can't. There's no way that he can. But yet he still forgives the debt, knows the servant's helplessness, and forgives anyway, all of it. Every single talent, every single piece of it. It's, a, it's unimaginable, this kind of forgiveness, if we're just thinking even of the financial side of it. I mean, I, I don't know how well I would do if I was in that circumstance to be able to forgive somebody's debt like that. I mean, that's, that's life-changing money. But he forgives it. I mean, today we have a heavy conversation about you know, the student debt issue within our country and whether that should be forgiven or whether it should not be forgiven. We're not gonna talk about that. But the reason why it's such a heavy conversation is because it's life-changing money. Debt changes everything. If you've been in debt, you just know how much of a burden it is, let alone something like this where it's trillions of dollars where you will never be free of it and it will always be hanging over you. This is an insane moment of forgiveness for anybody. Our debt is completely unpayable and nothing we do will make it go away. Our oil can never be water. And yet, God forgives us. Like I said, there's a difference of nature going on. So it's not just that we break a rule or we do you know, some minor thing. It's literally that we are rebelling against his very nature. We are defiling God's will by 
acting in a way of, of opposition toward him. It is much more deeply personal than just the language of a debt can make us understand. Because every single time we sin, every single time that we do something against God's ways, we break his heart. Because he loves each and every single one of us. We are his creation, made in his image. Whether you're a Christian or not, he loves you deeply. But because of our sin, we're oil and he's water. And we just can't mix unless something happens. And what happens is that God forgives us, forgives us of our rebellion, forgives us of breaking his heart again and again and again, and he forgives and he redeems us. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just want to forgive us. His forgiveness is so overwhelming. It is encompassing every aspect of our debt that he actually transforms us from oil to water so that we can mix with God, that we can be in relationship with him in his presence. It's miraculous. It's just not God being a good person by being able to forgive when he's been wronged. It's a miraculous forgiveness. He changes our oil into water. And so at this point in the parable, things are going to start to transition. We now follow the servant out of the king's presence, and he has a newfound freedom, no debt at all. He must be feeling really good at this point, must be overjoyed. Because not only was he uh, going to be thrown into debtor's prison, but his whole family were going to be sold alongside him. They were going to be sold into slavery to help pay this off. So I mean, this is a big deal for him and everyone he loves and cares about. He must be overjoyed. But we see in verse 28 that his response is a a little questionable. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. We can automatically see that this is probably not the best response he should have had. And it's so obvious, and that's kind of the point. And it's even more obvious because the debt itself is 100 denarii. Now remember, this dude just got about you know, multiple trillion dollars forgiven from his debt. And he goes out for a hundred denarii. Talent is the biggest denomination. Denarii is the smallest denomination at the time. So a hundred denarii is about three, four months wage. So it's not tiny. It's not, you know, like 10 bucks, but this is a few thousand dollars, but it is nowhere near the trillions that he had just had forgiven. So Jesus is making a very clear point. Like these situations are not even the same. They are so radically different between his debt and this other dude's debt that he's now trying to collect. And the servant just came from getting his freedom and he immediately goes out to collect his debt from another. And this is also pretty uh, in the face because this is a king and servant on this side, but this side, they're the same. It's a servant and a servant. They're equals, they're peers in every way. And so this guy goes to his peer, someone he has no power control over. This other dude has no obligation to him other than the debt. And he immediately lashes out in anger. Like he rages out at the guy completely. He's furious. He chokes him. Like he assaults this man to pay back his debt. And it's interesting how Jesus kind of words it too, because he does this before he even asks for the money. He comes in furious. So he leaves the king's presence, must be overjoyed. 
His debt is now gone. And somehow from walking out of that room to walking to where that other guy is, he gets himself so worked up in a frenzy that he assaults the man without even telling him why. And then says, you better pay me back what you owe me. The servant's heart is so radically different from the king's heart. And it is very obvious in the way that Jesus talks about this. And then after this, the man even pleads with him, almost verbatim, what he said to the king. Almost exactly the same thing. Begs him to give him more time so that he can pay him back. And in this case, he actually might have been able to. It wasn't trillions of dollars. He, he might have been able to pay him back. And he just refused, flat out, refuses, demands payment, throws him in debtor's prison. He had multiple chances to take a moment and just think, ah, should I be doing this? Should I be responding this way? There's absolutely no mercy or grace in his heart. As believers, as Christians, we have received amazing forgiveness and grace and mercy. An unpayable debt has been paid. But do we hold people to an unfair account? Do we have anger over little slights, little things? Do we hold on to stuff that really is kind of silly? Do we withhold mercy? Do we withhold grace? And it may seem kind of silly to you. I mean, this situation that the parable talks about is uh, exaggerated. I mean, that's the point of it. It's a parable. And it's dealing with finances, which is a big deal. I get that. But the point of the parable is to get our attention. So let's apply it, same type of situation, to some things within our own lives that aren't as exaggerated. And so first off, let's start rather general. Uh, what about road rage? Somebody uh, cuts you off, and in a moment, man, you're angry, and, and you might be saying a few things in your car. Is anyone hurt? Were you hurt? Car damaged? Anything happened, really? No. I mean, they were kind of a jerk, right? Shouldn't have done. But our response is uh, much angrier than it really should be. I know I, I get a lot more angry than I should on just little things like that. But there's no grace in that instance. What about differences in opinion? Now this is an area where our culture has failed tremendously. It's being able to love one another even if we disagree. And so I was gonna go one way, but something happened over the weekend. Roe versus Wade was overturned. Now I can actually guarantee that there are individuals in this place right now in this church who are on both sides of this. Some think that it should have happened and some think it shouldn't have happened. I am not going to give you a definitive answer. If you wanna to talk to me later, cool. But we're not gonna talk about Roe versus Wade, but I am gonna talk about, can you accept that there's another believer in this place that may have a different opinion than you do on it, and probably for biblical reasons? Because the last about eight, 12 years has shown us that within the church, a lot of people can't accept that difference. And that's just in the church. We're not even talking about culture as a whole. People who don't have the Holy Spirit working within our hearts. So can you accept different opinions? Can you still love and have grace and mercy if someone disagrees with you? Whether it's on a very serious issue or on something minor. I mean, we've joked before that churches split about, you know, difference of color of the carpet or whatever. It actually happens. 
Do you have grace? What about spouses? Wife or husband does some little thing that really annoys you, and uh, they just you know do it over and over and over, and you just uh, man every time, you just get a little upset about it. it. Really bugs you. And I know for a fact every married person is like yep, because <laughs> we all have it. We know it. Do you have grace? Do you have mercy? Or are those little things building up until they explode into a big thing? I can't tell you the countless conversations I've had with married couples over the years where they are really struggling with their marriage. They don't even know if they wanna continue. And their reasons though, don't really make sense. It's like, why, for that? But it's because it's a thousand little instances of unforgiveness that build and build and build. What about a friend who insults another friend? And it may not even be overt. Let's say your friend says just a callous remark that they didn't even mean to hurt you. They didn't mean it the way that it came out. And yet it wounds you deeply. Do you have any grace for them? Can you forgive them? Or do you hold on to that? make assumptions that probably aren't true. Parents, what about your kids? Do you have any grace and forgiveness for them? Whether they're little kids or adults, they may not do things the way that you want them to. Actually, I can guarantee it won't happen that way. Do you have grace? Can you forgive them? Can you live life with them knowing that you guys have a different way of doing things. And this goes the other way too. Uh, kids, and I'm talking to every person who has a parent, that, that's all of you in case you were wondering. Are you able to forgive your parents because they don't do things the way you do? Or because they have held on too tightly over the years? Or they have been themselves unforgiving? Can you find it within yourself to forgive? Conflict happens all the time, all throughout our life. We rack up little debts against us and we bear debts against others. It's just a part of this life. You can't escape it. And yet, even in light of God's grace and mercy toward us, we hold on to way too many of those instances all too easily. Let's move forward. In verse 31, it says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. So they saw this interaction, other servants saw this interaction between these two, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Remember, these two were equals. They were on the same level and the other servants, the other equals, the other peers saw this behavior and was shocked because it was just terrible. It shouldn't happen like this. They knew it was wrong. So they went to their master to make it right. The short piece that I have on this is that we are not alone as Christians. When we walk through forgiveness, when we walk through the heartache that comes with these debts that we bear toward one another, we are not alone. We live in a community of faith, the church, the big church and our church, storehouse. We have brothers and sisters that we can walk with, cry with, grieve with, ask the hard questions with, and rebuke us sometimes when it's necessary and say, you have not been forgiving. We need this. We cannot do it alone. And so this is just a real quick plug for our community groups and our discipleship groups. It's not just some program thing that we put out there. This is life-changing to live in community with one another 
So our community groups, the groups of you know, 10, 15, 18 people gathering together in homes, coffee shops, wherever, to be able to just talk about the sermon, talk about life, talk about scripture, to be able to just love one another, eat food together, laugh together. This is important. It's these relationships that we form that allow us to be able to walk through the tough times like forgiveness. And then discipleship groups. Discipleship groups are two, three, four people who gather together regularly to be able to confess sin, repent, pray with one another, challenge one another. Community groups are going to form those relationships, but it's these discipleship groups that are going to form you and mature you in a way that is radical. I can testify my own discipleship group has been one of the greatest instances of formation in my life over the past several months. The two men that I meet with, they challenge me. They rebuke me. They also encourage me. And when I do something good, they say, good job. But if I'm not exercising grace in my life, they're the first ones that are saying, you're messing this up. We need to dig into this. If you don't have that in your life, you are missing out. And not only are you missing out on an opportunity to be able to grow and to mature, but you're damaging yourself and your relationship with others. These relationships are important. God gives us our community for a reason. Take advantage of it. Find someone to meet with. Seek each other out and form these deeper relationships. Your life will never be the same. I can promise you that. So let's move forward in verse 32. Then his master summoned him. So the king summons back the first servant, summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The servant's called back and he is rebuked harshly, called wicked, immediately points out his lack of mercy, even though he knew what mercy looked like because he just experienced it. And so he makes him pay back the 10,000 talents, which once again, impossible. He can't. And he is thrown into debtor's prison forever. And not only that, as we saw at the very beginning, his entire family suffers because of it. So here's our application. And Jesus speaks very plainly about it in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now this is a very heavy and serious statement. It has also been taught incorrectly in many circles. And so we are going to very clearly state what this is saying and what it is not saying. What this is not saying is that our salvation will be withdrawn if we do not forgive somebody. You are not going to lose your salvation if you find it difficult to forgive someone. Our salvation is assured. No one, not even you, can pluck yourself from the Father's hand. He loves you, he cares for you deeply, and you are his. That's not going to change. So that's not what Jesus is saying with this statement, even though it, it can sound like that if taken incorrectly. So that's not what we're saying. What this statement is saying is that we may not have salvation at all if you have an unforgiving heart. It's not any uh, less heavy or less serious. And it's very blunt in a way that Jesus is not always as blunt as this. 
See, it's not just forgiveness itself that Jesus is pointing us toward. Peter had teshuva in mind when he was asking this question. And Jesus is saying it's not about that. It's not about the action of forgiveness or what that may entail or how often it may happen. It's about the heart behind it. Do you have a heart of forgiveness? The king speaks of mercy. How can, how can you not show mercy when I show mercy? That's what he asked him. How can you not show mercy? I showed you so much. And he comments on the hardness and self-centeredness of the heart of the servant, especially when he had just seen what true mercy looks like. We have renewed hearts, Christians. We have hearts that have been softened, made new, redeemed, where once we could never forgive the way God forgives, now we can. We know what mercy looks like. We know how great it is. We should never withhold it from another. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 says it very clearly. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Forgiveness is difficult, and I get that. And I've not covered every situation, and you may be thinking of something where you're asking yourself, how could I forgive? Forgiveness is a long process, and that's just a simple fact. So if you're feeling like you have a hard time forgiving, and you're afraid maybe this means I'm not a Christian, I wanna ask you, Do you want it? Do you strive for it, even if the road is long and difficult and the steps are tiny? Because a hard heart without the Holy Spirit would never even want forgiveness. And so I don't want you to walk away from this asking yourself, do I even know God? Because I know I have not forgiven somebody and I'm still wrestling with it. Don't fear for your salvation in that instance. I say be encouraged because you're fighting for something that's holy, especially when you don't feel it and you don't know the path forward. But a forgiving heart reflects God's heart. And even as we pursue forgiveness and we walk that long path forward, That means our heart, even though we may not be there yet, is a forgiving heart. One that desires it and moves forward with it. So continue to fight for mercy in your life. Continue to fight to be gracious. You have been shown so much by God. You have been forgiven so much. Don't forget that. And so go to that individual that you have sinned against and ask for forgiveness. Go to that individual that sinned against you and forgive them. Now, I'm not saying that consequences don't exist because they do. Somebody may have sinned against you so harshly, so badly, in such a destructive way that you have no obligation to ever have contact with them again. But forgiveness is still the best thing for you because it is a reflection of God's heart and God wants the best thing for you. Healing cannot happen if you cannot forgive. Consequences still exist, but forgiveness, it needs to happen anyway because forgiveness, it saves us. Without God's forgiveness, we have no eternal life. We have no salvation. Forgiveness is vital, and it saves us. Forgiveness transforms us. 
God's grace transforms and renews our hearts and our minds and allows us to extend like-minded grace toward others within our lives. And forgiveness assures us. Jesus warns that an unforgiving heart is one without God. So I say to you, Christian, one, be warned, but then two, be encouraged that you do have a forgiving heart. Be encouraged that you do forgive and that you seek out redemption and reconciliation in relationships. And if you find yourself in a situation where you recognize, man, I haven't done that. I haven't forgiven. I just pushed it aside. Then chase after it. That's the Holy Spirit prompting you from within because he says your heart is new. It is changed. Chase after grace. Have mercy on others. Have mercy on yourself. Pursue forgiveness because you are his and he wants the best thing for you and he will show you the way. I don't have all the answers for you, but he does. And God will show you the way forward. Know that God is near. A forgiving heart reflects God's heart. Be encouraged that he is at work within you. And that when you forgive, when you are gracious and merciful, that that is evidence of God within you. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for you. I am grateful for what you do within me, within all of us, that you promise to renew us, that you promise to redeem us and make it so that we may honor you through our relationships. And a big part of that is forgiveness. Every relationship we have ever had and every relationship we ever will have will require forgiveness at some point or another. And it is muddy, it is difficult, it is full of heartache, and yet you point us forward saying, my heart shows you the way. My heart loves and we can know what that looks like through you. Lord, you are so good. I humbly ask that every single one of us within this place today, as we think upon those instances where we may be withholding forgiveness or we may be struggling with how to forgive or we may need to go ask for forgiveness or we're just sitting in grief and lament and we don't know how to move forward at all and we don't even want to, I ask that you pour your grace upon us. Encourage us, guide us forward, hold us tight. Because as crazy as the wilderness may seem around us, you always guide us through. You show us the way. Thank you, Father. In your holy name, amen.